Welcome back to Speaking to Stacy, the podcast sharing practical advice for an action-driven lifestyle. My name is Stacy Liddell, and it's my belief that this episode will resonate with a lot of listeners. Whether you're interested in sports, personal development, or just looking for some inspiration, this conversation is worth a listen. Before I introduce my guest, I want to say a big thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen in and learn something new. This week, my guest is Timothy Sweel. Tim has had a successful career in professional rugby, playing for teams such as Harlequins and the Stormers, but he's not just an athlete. He has also had to navigate through a number of injuries and personal struggles, and in this conversation with him, he opens up about how these experiences have changed his perspective and approach to life. If you stick around until the end of today's show, you'll find out how Tim optimizes his body, mind, and soul. Three key highlights are, one, learning from Tim's experience on the importance of having a good coach or mentor, two, gaining insight on how to cope with loss and grief, and three, understanding the benefits of tapping into one's creative side. So without any further ado, here's my guest, Tim Sweel. All right, so I have Timothy Sweel with me on the show today, and as is custom on the show, Timothy, you may introduce yourself, give everyone a rundown of your background, and then we can dive into some of the talking points we've got today. Hi guys, yeah, my name's Timothy Sweel. I am 29 years old. I was born in the UK, but brought up in Cape Town, South Africa. I've been a professional rugby player, what's it now, for about 11 years, yeah, 11 years. Um, I've played six years in the United Kingdom, four years in South Africa, and now I'm in Japan, continuing my professional career. Uh, it's been a great journey. Learned a lot along the way. Met some amazing people, and yeah, I'm looking forward to having a good chat with you, Stacy. Okay, awesome. So, Tim, I think because your rugby career has been the main fixture of of your sports career, let's maybe dive into some experiences that you've had as a professional rugby player the good, the bad, and um, I know off-air we were talking a bit about injury and those kinds of things and how you dealt with that. So, yeah, you can you can just jump in wherever you think is relevant uh, from either from high school or after high school and, yeah, just walk us through your experiences as a professional rugby player. Yeah, well, I, I played all age group stuff when I was at, at – um... At Bishops, you know, it was a great, uh, as you know, Bishops is a great rugby school and my passion grew from being there. Uh, I, I signed for Western Province straight after school, after playing for SS Schools and, and Craven Week and all that. And then in my under 20 year, I, I made the SA under 20 team and it was quite a controversial moment in my in my career. I I So the, the rule was if you play for South Africa's second national team, uh, you get country locked. And normally it would be like the main team and then the A team. But in that year, it was the SA under 20 team. So there I am in the Stormers preseason with all these big dogs like the Brian Abanners, Sean de Villiers, and kind of asking them about what I should do. So it was, it was like straight in, boom, professional rugby career. And I had this big decision to make. And then after kind of chatting to, 
my father and a few coaches, we decided to, to um, well, I decided to pull out of this tournament. And it was, it was quite a controversial thing. So, you know, your dream was of playing for the Springboks and stuff has the root of the under 20. But because I was born in South Africa, oh, sorry, in, in the UK, I, um, I had this kind of two choices. After playing age group at Western Province, I moved to the Sharks when, when Jake White went there. And then played there for the season, played Super Rugby. And then at the end of the year, there was quite, there was a bit of a break. And I, because of my passport, I was like, look, I, I might as well utilize this. And there was an opportunity to go to Harlequins on a loan deal for three months. And I ended up going and was always coming back to the Sharks. But while I was away, Jake left the Sharks. So then I was in this position of Jake brought me to the Sharks. Should I come back? He's not there type thing. Or should I stay in the country that I was not really, not wouldn't say it was my like here's home country like South Africa, but you know, I'd, I'd gone there on this, uh, this, this loan deal. I had made that decision with the, the South African own twenties. So after a bit of thought, I, I decided to stay at Harlequins and ended up being there for four years. So that's kind of how it all started after school. And, you know, that's, that's, um, those are the early early things with my with my um, professional career. So that that situation where you country locked, or had you been country locked, just to explain to those people that that aren't familiar with what you mean is basically if you'd taken up that opportunity to play for the under twenty side, you would have no longer been eligible to play for the UK at all at in in any national capacity. Yes, it wouldn't it wouldn't have just been playing for England. It was also being able to play in England. And and when I was 16 years old, I went I went on exchange to Dulwich College, you know the the saying is like a SOTI. I'm a typical SOTI because I I literally I, I went to school there on exchange. I was mainly schooled in South Africa. Went there on exchange. Was born in England. Lived in South Africa. So I was very 50 50, like the like the saying goes. You know. So at that stage, if you could only play in the UK if you were a Springbok. At that stage, it was like classed as skilled labour. Whereas now, if you play like seventy five percent of Super Rugby or, or URC, you can you can move over. So it wasn't just playing for England; it was being able to go and play there. Okay, wow. All right, and do you think, looking back, if you by turning down that opportunity, do you think that it impacted your opportunities? in the South African rugby setup? I'm not talking about provincial. I'm talking about the national setup. Do you think they they would treated you differently thereafter or are you, are you, can you not really speak to that? It's hard to say really, but obviously coaches that were involved at the time w- weren't happy with that, obviously under 20 coaches. So you, you never actually know. That, no one ever said anything, but there's always that kind of not knowing what, what someone else thinks. But... I don't. I don't think it had a had a had an impact on on local stuff. Um, but it definitely did have an impact on my decision to stay in the UK when I had gone on that loan. I have no regrets over the the decision. Um, but as you say, if I went and had a really good tournament, you, you never know. Like spring, it can springboard you too. So that would be the only kind of regret. But it's not really a, a regret. Okay. Awesome. I wanted to get back to what you said about Jake White. You often hear in soccer or in football that when a manager signs a player, then the manager leaves and a new manager comes in. 
it can be quite stressful for that crop of players that were brought in by the manager or by the coach, however it may work. Is that something that's tangible in rugby sides as well, or does it work differently? Did you, because I know you mentioned there that you did feel as if it impacted your decision whether to stay or to go. Does that, is that something that across all clubs, do you think? Do you think it works like that, or is it, was it just something personal to your situation? I definitely think it, it's kind of across the board. Rugby rugby coaches don't don't obviously move from club to club as frequent as as football coaches, but you know if, if someone does sign you to a place and does back you in that specific year, or when it, you know, then it is a bit kind of demotivating to to hear that that coach is gone or you know. So um, I definitely do think it has an impact, and because I was there for so short before. I went overseas. It wasn't like I could build these big relationships with the other coaches there, you know. So it was like he'd known me for a while through my youth career, and 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 it was a big thing for me to leave province where I'm still so passionate about province Stormers rugby, you know. Um, go to the Sharks for a year, off the back of a good under under twenty one Curry Cup campaign. We had a great year that year with it was actually with with the Stormers coaches who are present now, uh, John Dobson and Davis Neyman. So yeah, it's, it was it was pretty pretty interesting times. But I, in hindsight, I was, I'm happy that I stayed at Harlequins for those those years after. And what is it like working with someone like Jake White? I will never forget from my personal experience. The reason why I asked this is because Nick Mallet came down and and helped out with some of our sessions. It was on a 16B side at Bishops, and his son Doug was involved, obviously in our year. So he came down and helped and. In those 45 minutes to an hour that he was available for, I just it completely changed the way that I think and uh, thought about rugby because just the insight and the perspective that he was able to share from his international experience and how the game works at those sort of high levels. What is it like working with someone like Jake? Yeah, it's, it's pretty intense, first of all. Um, you know, I put him in the same characters like Eddie Jones, Brendan Fenter, Nick Mallett, kind of those four they're very similar in the in, in the in the sense that they they get their point across, you know, and they they really believe in what they they coach. So they obviously all have great experience, but at the same time, it's it's not just the experience that counts. It's it's really buying into your own belief and what you think can win you games. Um, and those kind of alpha male type characters, you know, it, it really works. It's it has really worked in the last what twenty twenty years with. Uh, in the in the rugby environment, um, and it's funny you say that because I, when I moved back to the Stormers um, after my England, my six years in England, Brendan Fenter came and helped us at the Stormers, and I remember when, in the under twenties, he was helping us that year in the baby box when I when I pulled out, and he kind of said, "Just play for us, international rugby. You know, it's it's the club rugby's kind of you play more games with club rugby. It's more frequent. It's." international rugby is kind of overrated and I don't know my, my dad at the time was like oh that's a bit of a weird comment type of thing anyway long story short here I'm reuni- reunited with Brendan Fenter and I had the similar moment to you did in when you were in the under 16 with Nick Mallett I just saw another side of rugby you know with the territory game and and kind of putting pressure on other teams like the Saracens way the stuff that they've been really good at over the years and I, I bought into this like anything. I've obviously come from bishops where you play that attacking brand, run behind your try line type thing. 
gone over to England, learned a bit about game management, but not 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 on a level of you know Blue Bulls in two thousand and seven. But you know, coming and then I came back to South Africa, and people thought I'd learned this whole kicking game in England. But no, it was those few months that Brendan Fenter helped us with the Stormers that really kind of opened my eyes to this this new type of rugby. So it, it was weird that I experienced that in my later twenties, my latter twenties. But yeah, it was it was a it was a crazy moment. It's amazing how certain people can like walk in at the right moment or at any moment, I guess, and just completely flip what you think on its head. Um, I remember like with Nick specifically, it was defensive stuff. It was being used at international level rugby that it hadn't quite filtered down into, into schoolboy rugby yet. And it was just, it wasn't extremely technical or complicated. I can't remember exactly what it was. I mean, it was like 17 years ago, <laughs> but yeah, it was something to, it must've been like line speed and those kinds of things. And just putting like using that defensive line much more efficiently and effectively and just completely changed the way that that side played and made us so much more competitive, like in the, on the, in that defensive space. So it's amazing how, how, as I said, people can come in and just flip what you, what you think, you know, and make you realize you actually don't know anything. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it, the same thing happened to me with kicking. So I, I'd obviously, I've always been a kicker, you know, from schools since I was what, under 10, kicking for poles, going to the false bay field when I was a lighty. But when I moved back to South Africa, my good friend, Dimitri Katrakilis, who I still think is the world's best ever goal kicker, I had a few sessions with him and he just taught me controlling the ball on your foot so you know I used to kick with a higher tee and a longer run-up and it used to go all over the place and you know sometimes you connected well and it goes straight through the middle I changed my um I changed my style and my tee it was it was after a game a Harlequins game I I I missed the kick to win the game and the coaches held it against me for for one of the rest of the season and then when I came back to South Africa I changed my tee and my my run-up type thing and I kind of went more of a process-driven approach. And then from that moment, I learned more about how to control the ball on my foot when I kicked it, but not 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 perfectly. And then when I came back to South Africa, I met up with Dimitri and, you know, that was his thing, short run-up, lower tee, less room for error. And, and we had some good sessions and he really taught me, you know, how to, how to control the ball. And, you know, I, I feel like those kind of things I want to do one day with players, you know, a bit of kicking coaching, skills coaching, because... Um, you know, my, my personality has always been a bit on the hyperactive side. You know, I've I've, I've gone for the, the ADHD tests and they, they said I, I'm not ADHD, but I, I still think I am a little bit. So I've always been one that, like, I'd rather help other people than, than focus on my own. Well, obviously, I, I, I want to improve my game too, but at the same time, I'm, I'm always nosy and wanting to help other people because of that hyperactivity, you know. So I think what Dimitri's taught me, I'm hoping to do the same with with some players after rugby. From the conversations I've had with other sports people as well, they do say that once the career is tapering off, it is a great thing to do is to give back in any capacity that you can. Sometimes it is difficult, uh, especially if you are pursuing a new career in, in something different outside of the sport and your time sort of becomes locked into into those pursuits. But that's definitely definitely something admirable to look into to to give back it always is like i think i i just did some coaching at bishops when i was still at university that's some of my fondest memories rugby memories were coaching because you can see 
the knowledge and the stuff that you're imparting is actually being absorbed and used and yeah it's it's a it's like a really powerful thing to witness uh, firsthand yeah well actually i worked with a mentor a few years ago and his his big thing kind of taught me was serve yourself in order to serve others so most most of my 20s i've just been wanting to get the teams that i'm in like better and help everyone else without helping myself you know but you kind of have to elevate yourself to a level where you are in a position to help others, you know, and that's obviously the the main goal. Hundred percent, yeah. Probably going to be a little bit controversial because he's a controversial figure, but um, Jordan Peterson always says, you know, you can't go out into the world and help the world if you haven't learned how to clean your room and make your bed yourself. My dad is literally that kind of guy. He's very much um, old school, and he spent a lot of time in the military. I think he learned those lessons there. He's been preaching those things to me since <laughs> since I was little, and it never really penetrated. And then because of the way that uh, Jordan Peterson articulates things, it just it just. And I think I was a bit more mature when I came across the material. It just struck me, and it stuck with me for the last, especially the last five years. I would say, as I've grown a bit older, you realize that that dad, actually, the wisdom that dad has. It's definitely worth listening to because he's he's walked the same road that you have and he knows a little bit more about life than you do. Yeah, I suppose we all have such good lives at Bishops and in Cape Town, you know, back in the day. So it's like these little things that you that, that you hear when you're younger, you're just having such a good time. You don't really you don't really it doesn't really soak in until <laughs> your late twenties, early thirties where you're like, mm, maybe they were right. <laughs> I feel like compelled to pick up my phone and message my dad when when one of his uh, what do they call one of his platitudes kind of comes to light and then I enact on it and I have to send him a message like you won't believe what happened today I know you told me this 25 years ago but I've finally put it to use and uh, and it's worked you know like like silly things like he, his big one is always like just have a tidy room and another one of his big ones was just always be the last one to to leave basically not in terms of, of going out but in terms of putting work in always be the last one to leave the, the rugby practice always be the last one to leave the library obviously in terms of getting extra hours in and stuff that's great but also in terms of perception so if you've seen if you've seen out there kicking even if you miss every kick sometimes the perception of, of what a coach sees you know can be can be crucial very true yeah we are very perceptive creatures so speaking of perception another one of his big ones is is like self-presentation and grooming he has a bit of a beard sometimes but always very neat hair's always neat he's a lawyer so he's the luxury that he wears a suit every day because it requires it of him but i mean always like he's always said you know you don't know who you're going to bump into and those first impressions you can never make a second first impression so always look your best you know so and it's those kind of things you're like oh dad like whatever don't talk to me about that kind of stuff and then you realize like whether you like it or not, people are judging you. Are you sure he hasn't been out to Japan? Because that's how they all they like that. Yeah, everyone they spend. You know, they say the Italians spend about eighty percent of their income on on fashion. In Japan, I think they spend eighty percent on like beauty and hair and makeup. The culture of Korea is very similar, especially for for women. But it's now becoming a thing for the men as well with the rise of of K-pop and. Yes like how well manicured and groomed those guys are for the women it's especially bad i say bad because i don't think it's it doesn't feel fair to me so for example if you're a woman you arrive at work and you're feeling a bit under the weather and you haven't bothered to put some makeup on people will often ask you like is everything okay you know you, you don't look yourself and what they actually mean is that 
like why why haven't you done yourself up today it's like a a soft way of, of asking like why are you not dolled up of course yeah I mean, and they wouldn't even ask it because they they they're not direct they're not even like they're not at all direct so if they feel something they'll just kind of bottle it in and just look at you and just bow you know <laughs> um seeing as we as we already touched on family and and i spoke a bit about my dad if you'd like to jump away from rugby a little bit and talk about your the last kind of two and a half three years what happened in your family and how it impacted on you and moving back to south africa after rugby if you're happy to go the next yeah all good we you know, we share a pretty similar situation so um in feb 2020 my my, my father passed away um i was still up in newcastle so after my four years at Harlequins, I, I went to um, Newcastle Falcons up north for two years. Nice and nice and warm weather. But yeah, so I was there for for two years. Um, and as just before COVID, I was still playing in Newcastle. And then my mom called me at about one in the morning, and I was like, "Oh, that's something's not right. That's a weird time to call." And my dad had had a, a bad fall after having a stent put in. Long story short, he he was fine after the fall, and then a few days after, he he developed headaches and had to get rushed to the he got rushed to the hospital, and then ended up getting having a brain hemorrhage. Sure. And then I I made my way back to South Africa as soon as I could, and it was you know that apart from the the devastating event, the worst was probably getting from Newcastle to Cape Town. It was like Newcastle train to to London then flight, just having no control over how my dad was and what was happening. And it was like, I mean, I felt sorry for the other passengers next to me. I was just weeping for like, what is it, 16 hours. It was, it was quite a quite a crazy moment. Anyway, I got to Cape Town and then so my, my dad was in a coma for three days, but that was a very big moment for me, the, the kind of being at the hospital, seeing family, friends and all that and kind of, you know, kind of connecting and bonding over my dad's situation and yeah I didn't leave aside for three days and then eventually he passed away and it was you know, it was quite a moment you know so um, I, I think I've grown up a lot since then you know before I was always this happy-go-jolly you know party party dude rugby guy lots of mates type thing and I think this whole moment with my father coincided with uh, me doing some work with a mentor I'd actually I'd actually started a few few months before my dad passed and like some of the teachings were talking about expectation, talking about de- detaching from parents, you know, all these like crazy moments and then, you know, and then leading to my dad passing away. It was just like I, I can't even describe it. It was just the, the things that were happening at that stage in my life. But, yeah, so that was a big moment for me and, and my family. And just after my dad's passing – COVID, all the lockdowns and stuff hit, you know. So I, I came back to South Africa. My dad passed away and I was at home for a month, then went back to Newcastle and the craziest thing happened. I I didn't think I would be playing because I'd been away for a month. And then that Saturday I, I was named on the bench and then – walk into the change room and then open the match day program thing. And I literally opened it onto a page and the page was uh, like a Q and a thing of me. And I like stare down at the question saying, who was your rugby inspiration? And it was like this whole thing I'd spoken about my dad. And like, 
I, I didn't even know, like, I couldn't even remember doing that. And it was like how he introduced me to rugby from a young age and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it was quite a surreal moment. And I was, I was on the bench in the game and I came on with 10 minutes to go. And just before I went back to South Africa, when this all happened, I, I played one or two games at wing and that was my dad's position. But I'd been, I'd been mainly, I'd been mainly playing fullback. Anyway, long story short, come back from South Africa, was on the bench, come on with 10 minutes to go and I touched the ball once and I scored a try. So it was like this, all these like, when I, in my younger days, I wasn't this like emotional type of guy, but then all of a sudden, all these emotional things were hitting me, you know, family bereavements and, and kind of the after events. I was just like in this whole world of like not knowing what was happening. And as I scored the try, I just like burst into tears. It was quite a moment. My teammates like could see and they, you know, they were very supportive and all that. Um, and then after that, if a week goes by and then my coach calls me saying, look, lockdown's about to hit. Do you want to head back to South Africa? You know, we know what's happened with your family. Maybe go spend some time with them. And if, if things change, you can come back. And, but for now, it doesn't look like we're going to be playing the rest of the season. So then I was like, I was like, okay. And I got on a plane as soon as I could. Um, he- I headed back to Cape Town and then never went back to the UK, uh, after that, you know. So the whole thing with my dad was th- this whole kind of few months, it was a few months of this massive emotion that I'd never experienced in my life before. And obviously having a mentor at the time did help me and then being around my family. And, and in a weird way, lockdown also helped me because I was with my mom and my brother. I was doing my gym and all these kind of things negotiating, going back to the Stormers. So there were a lot of positives around this huge negative event in my life. Um, and I think spending the two years in Cape Town after my dad's passing was a big thing for me, you know. And then, you know, I think about my dad every day. We spoke every day, you know, all these things that I'm sure you had the same the same relationship with your mom, you know. Um, but one thing I must say is that, you know, people that have issues with their parents or kind of a – a relationship that isn't perfect, not that mine is perfect, but a relationship that isn't well-functioning, when that person passes away, there's always that that horrible feeling of regret, whereas I never had that with my dad because of the relationship we had. So I kind of grew up so quickly after that, you know, and I feel, you know, that for the rest of my life, I'll, I'll never forget those few months of re- reactions to, to my dad's passing, you know. Um, and I, I always relate to people that they lost a parent in their, in their mid twenties, you know, my girlfriend also lost her mom a year before I I had met her and a year before my dad passed away, you know, so we kind of bonded over that. And and whenever I meet people or teammates whose parents pass away, you know, I can have those honest conversations and I'm not scared to kind of talk about death and, you know, the the loss of a close one because of how, how how it happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that I've also tried to, to be, to other people i'm mates with anton taylor as well and he lost his mom quite shortly after my mom passed and i immediately just well kathleen my girlfriend anton's sister <laughs> oh wow okay well there we go <laughs> there um go. uh that is that's weird that's wild so yeah i i spoke to him about that immediately because he had got me into boxing yeah after my mom passed away because i used boxing as a way to to kind of meditate on on her passing 
and also like hitting the bag obviously helps with a little bit of the anger and i was at first my initial emotions were a lot around sort of this isn't really fair yeah. um before i could really process it properly and i just thought you know i need a way of getting stress out of out of the system and i was lifting weights and stuff but it just wasn't quite doing it for me so i think the the boxing really really helped with that but yeah so he introduced me to boxing and then unfortunately his mom passed away and um i then you know basically lent a lent a shoulder to him and just said look if you want to talk about anything you can you can just be frank with me you can be honest with me because i know sometimes it's i remember when my mom passed away i didn't really have close friends that had gone through the same experience so although although they they reached out to me and i really appreciated the, everything that they gave to me they i could feel them struggling to understand the the meaning of it because they had an they had an experience it themselves like you can be sympathetic towards someone but you i i don't, I don't know maybe i'm I maybe I was overthinking but it just felt as if they they couldn't say to me like i know how you feel you know what i mean yes, like yes, you, yes. you don't have that that shared experience yes. i just was looking for someone to connect with on it um and then thank god that i had my siblings because then i could obviously connect with them on that and and i had the same experience with you uh, my mom passing i think one of the most beautiful things about about it if i can say it like that is watching everyone come together around her in that moment yeah. and just seeing all of that togetherness and love and she was clearly a really incredible woman to so many people because so many people you know were there to support and yeah. and those kind of things so that i mean i tr- down the road after she, after i dealt with the more the grief side of things i tried to to look backwards and think about all the good and the beauty that came out of that moment as well as not just to write it off as like a yeah. as a, only a traumatic event of course yeah yeah well I, one thing i kind of realized is that like some people won't even say i'm sorry to hear about your dad other people will be like oh i'm so sorry and show a bit more emotion but at the end of the day it's it's just the way they react to things happening emotionally so i learned i kind of a big thing for me was not to judge on how people react to my father dying type thing you know um yeah but another thing was it was a big wake up call for people in his age group my my father's age group um in terms of their health and all that kind of stuff because my dad was this fit swimming every day exercising strong guy full of life life of the party um and then all of a sudden this hap- he he passes away and then all all of his kind of age group were like whoa we need to look after ourselves type thing so he was a big example to you know it was a big surprise and a shock but yeah it was a crazy moment yeah i th- i think it's it's always a bit like that i remember Kyle de Santos's dad passing away when we were in i think still in high school and i i might be wrong but I, i'm pretty sure that his dad was never really a, a big time smoker if a smoker at all and he got lung cancer and passed away and i just remember that same sort of feeling amongst the adults because he was also so, there was nothing really wrong with him in terms of his his health other than that and i remember listening and the feeling around the parents thinking like geez you know if he's not much he's not he wasn't old and a lot of people felt that same way like yo you're not as don't take everything for granted because you never know it, it it can happen in in strange ways like that your relationship with your dad from from the outside of what you said there clearly like very very tight do you think the reason why 
you made that sort of 180 change or you felt like you grew up so quickly, do you think it's to do with with the fact that your dad, your role model passed away and, and that kind of, it called for you to to change or or what do you think drove that that quite drastic change that you went through? Well, for me, so what happens with a lot of young kids going into their, you know, post-school lives, especially sportsmen, is that like a, a lot of the time they'll they'll be living, they're, they're, sorry, the, the, their fathers will be living their dreams through their children. So, so let's say my dad was a good rugby player, which he was, played UCT first team, went to Oxford. I think partied a bit too much. I didn't take it too <laughs> too seriously there, but he he was a good, talented sportsman. Never made it to the highest level. Then has has a kid that's good at rugby and all that kind of stuff. So he loved rugby as much as I did. And I've always loved rugby. It's never he's never pushed. He never pushed me. It was never you know there was such a passion of mine. But when things happened, like I wouldn't make a team, or um, I was on the bench, or I had injuries, I would always have that. I would always feel that expectation. You know, I'd always feel the the kind of stress from. Kind of what's my dad gonna think? You know, I'm I'm, I'm doing it for him. To, you know, I'm pushing for 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 him to be satisfied because obviously he loved rugby as much as I love rugby, and and um, our relationship was also built on, on on rugby and sport and all that kind of stuff. So when I had all these injuries and rugby was tough, um, kind of going through tough tough times with rugby and all that, I would sometimes not want to say. I would sometimes not even want to text him saying oh, I'm not playing this weekend. It would be quite, you know, it would make me quite stressed, and and, and I get quite panicky about it all. And I even had thoughts of not of not wanting to continue and stop. But since my dad's passing, it's kind of like rather than playing for my dad when he's alive, now I've I've turned the corner into really enjoying my rugby, kind of playing for myself, but also my dad's legacy type thing. So. Playing for someone who's alive and there's that expectation is very different to, to to kind of playing for someone's legacy and and kind of knowing that they'll be proud of what you're doing, whether you're getting picked or getting injured or just playing or you know continuing. So I think my whole rugby mindset and and the love I had I have for the or had for the game got revitalized and and kind of changed a lot through his passing. And I mean, it's not to say he, the, the relationship with rugby was negative with my dad. It's just you know he's a proud fa- he was a proud father, passionate, and then there is that natural expectation that kind of commences, you know. So my whole kind of outlook changed with my rugby from then, and then, um, but there were a few injuries after that, so it hasn't all been plain sailing. But no, you know, so I'm I'm loving my rugby now. Back, I'm playing like feeling like I am or like I was when I was. 10 years old type thing, passion revitalized, you know. So so it's taken a, a lot of things to happen, you know, in my life to be in this position. So, yeah, it's 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 been been pretty hectic. I'm wondering if you'd like to talk about sort of your struggles with injury because I know we jumped from rugby in, and then spoke a bit about your dad. I just thought it was a good point to go into um, because of the – I was ch- talking obviously about my relationship with my my dad and stuff like that. Would you like to maybe go back and talk about some of the highlights and the lowlights, maybe particularly with injury and then some of the good things that have, have come out of your rugby career? And then um, we can see see where we go from there. Yeah, so injury has been a big part of my career. Um, 
I had never really been injured at school. And then after school, I think it was a year after my under-19, I had a shoulder up. So altogether, I've had two shoulder ups, an ankle up, a broken jaw. And then in 2019, when I was at Falcons, just after Quinn's, I had this groin surgery. And the surgeon, I don't think, was an expert in the field. He was more of a general surgeon. So the, the repercussions weren't too great. And I, I'd, been, uh, I'd been struggling hugely with this groin injury. And I... I when I left Falcons and went back to the Stormers, in that lockdown phase, I kind of got obsessive over my training, and the the, the groin pain went away. But you know, I think everyone had a bit of a kind of revitalization in in lockdown, and I certainly did with my my training and stuff. And my my groin did feel a bit better. But then, as soon as I started back again with the Stormers, this groin injury, this niggle came back. But I was taking anti-inflammatories and just pumping myself full of these anti-inflammatory pills before games in training just trying to master the pain and my mentor at the time was talking about healing it naturally you know because he, he was quite a spiritual type guy and he was saying that natural healing is better type thing but the fact that I'd had an operation that wasn't natural and there was a mess up there I'd always thought I needed another operation to fix it type thing but I was just trying to listen to him and keep it all natural you know and then I was, uh, I, I, so my thing is I'm a fast twitch athlete. I, I, you asked me to run three Ks. I, I, I struggle with the five K, three K, five K, 10 K, whatever it may be. But ask me to run 20 meters. I'll, I'll, I'll do well. 60 meters. I've always been that guy in the squad that'll come first in the sprint test. But then when it comes to the longer distance, I really struggle. So there I had this, I'm, I'm this fast twitch athlete who couldn't sprint because of his groin niggle. It was the worst combination, and I, I, I'd some days I literally think, is something wrong with me? Am I? Is this mental? You know, I'd go through these, I'd have these hectic thoughts on thinking, am I, am I lying to myself that I'm injured? Why can't I sprint properly? Why am I sore when I gym? And I just had these few years of just not knowing. Um, and then, and I, it's also part, it's all my fault in the sense that I wasn't taking responsibility with my rehab when I was maybe younger or finding the right surgeon when I was at Falcons or, you know, all these types of things. So I never, I never blame other people, you know, it's all about the the responsibility that, that you take. So I said to myself, I need to fix this or I'm going to have to stop rugby. Um, and then about a year ago, I was doing extensive research and I found this surgeon in London and actually I went and got groin surgery in, in June, 2022. And Touch wood, it's, I feel like I'm 20 again. So <laughs> it's been, it's been quite a ride with injuries. And this, this one's really, this one's been a big learning curve for me though, just in terms of kind of not giving up when you literally can't run. It's like, it, it was pretty hectic. So I'm just happy that I can maybe run around the garden one day with my kids. You know, I'm not only thinking of the next few years with my rugby, but just being able to run properly, you know, so. Injuries, I think, teach you as much as losing, as much as winning, as much as getting dropped, you know, so it's it's been a hell of a ride. Yeah, I think what you said there about running around in the yard with my kids is the reason why I also eventually went to fix my knee. So I had a knee surgery when I was I was much younger, as as the listeners will know, I've spoken about it a few times, but I never I never spoke about why I went and actually did the second one. The doctor said to me, look, because you're not a sports person, you're not using your knee for for performance, 
you don't necessarily need to have a surgery done, but when you get older one day, you're going to have problems because your cartilage has is a bit damaged. And he basically said to me, you either sort it out now or you can leave it and then deal with the consequences when you're older. And my dad has got a terrible knee. And I was just, with him in mind, I was just thinking, I don't want to be 45 and not be able to, if the guys want to go play some touch, I don't want to be the only dad sitting on the sideline watching the guys play. And it's a good call to make to think long-term. I think long-term thinking is in short supply these days. Yeah, I'll, I'll forever be grateful to the surgeon. He does all the Premier League guys in London. I had to pay out of my own pocket, so I'm trying to play a bit of catch-up now. But it's it's life-changing. And hopefully, you know, with my with my GPS meters and my, my high-speed meters now, you can see a radical change in, in, you know, I'm getting over nine meters per second trying to get closer to 10. Whereas when I was at the Stormers, I was hitting like seven, eight. Like, you know, it's, it's huge. It's huge. It's And as a playing flyer fullback you know it's you need your speed and so i'm just i'm just grateful for that for that kind of change it's nice to get the positive feedback after the operation i mean Jesus, can you imagine had you done the op and and it had not turned out i, I and that's what happens there's eh? some people that happens to them they like doesn't matter how many surgeries they go for they just cannot kick that injury and just destroys your career so touch wood for you well, that happened the first time it was, it was like i didn't really know what to do it was like you know, so I'm just grateful that it's that it's it's fixed now. Yeah, your your injury list sounds like you were a rodeo cowboy, not a rugby player. Like shoulders, ankles, jaws. <laughs> I'm not going to go to the grave in a in a in a good state, but I don't. I wouldn't want it any other way. <laughs> One day, find your find your bones. You're like, oh, this guy must have been a like a gladiator. Like, no, no, he was just a rugby player. <laughs> <laughs> you also said a few times you spoke about your mentor and. I would love to talk about two things before we wrap up. It's the your sort of your entrepreneurial aspect of of what you did with your with your uh, is it kefir water? Yeah, kefir water and fermented foods. Yeah, that would be great to go into that and sort of maybe some of the lessons you learned out of that and and why you did all that. And then, is there a future in that? To, would you like to continue doing that, or are you continuing doing that? And then we can also talk about your mentor. So, uh, which one would you prefer to talk about first? We can start with the with the website, Reap the Sir. When I moved back from Newcastle and, and moved back to South Africa, my cousin, who's uh, I mean, uh, he's probably the best in South Africa, one of the world's best in fermented foods, gut health, sustainable living. So, um, in he, sorry, he um had cancer when he was in matric. James Caper, I think you know him. Yes. And obviously it, it all coincided with, with my father's passing and moving back to South Africa. And he was quite a calming influence on me. You know, he's a bit different in terms of, you know, he lives out in Scarborough, very into the nature kind of thing. You know, he, he follows a lot of Khoisan traditions. And I was spending a lot of time with James. Um, and he was, I felt a nice calming influence on me after such a traumatic event. I have a few allergies. I have asthma and I'm allergic to a few things. And the whole gut health thing was a, was a very interesting topic for me. And I, I delved deep into it. So he does kefir waters and kefir milks, which are kind of a, it's like a fermented sugary ginger water, but obviously the sugar gets fermented and you're left with like a, we are left with a, a probiotic thirst quenching drink. And then the, the milk kefir 
is fermented milk. So what happens is is the, the grains ferment the milk. It eats, it eats the lactose and the sugar out of the milk and you're left with this like sour milk that's seriously good for your gut. And a lot of people struggle to drink it because it's like the sour milk, but I mix it into my smoothies and I'll make like a kefir milk smoothie with blueberries and it, it does wonders to the gut. Anyway, so having this relationship with my cousin and, and growing the relationship really I felt all the benefits of this of the fermented foods with my allergies, with my asthma, with my training, and then I thought I thought to myself, I'm, I don't want to just do rugby. So if you only do rugby, it can be quite demanding. You know, it doesn't stimulate the mind, and it's quite just a physical sport. You get bashed around every weekend. So I started a little company called Reap the Sow just to broaden people's knowledge on these types of things, not just fermented foods. It talks about on the website, there's stuff about training, a few things about mental health. But the fermented foods was the main thing in the beginning. And I had all the Stormers guys on on the, the kefir water. And so, some of them had the kefir milk, the ones who could bear the, the sour taste. <laughs> and it was great, you know. And I, I still, I literally smuggled my kefir milk grains and, and kefir water grains into Japan. So I do that here and a few other guys have. But, yeah, so I made this website. And I'm slowly building it. Obviously, in Cape Town, I was selling the products to the Stormers guys and a few a few close family friends and all that. But moving to Japan, I've taken a, a backseat on, on the distribution there, and I'm just slowly going to build the website. And, and, and my, four, my four aspects are the fermented foods, the training, the mental health, and then um, sustainable living or outdoor and sustainable living. So it's kind of different to the London the London life or the <laughs> well Cape Town has that aspect to it. But yeah, it's a bit of a one eighty on on what I was doing in the UK. But yeah, it's been great to kind of get my head away from rugby and, and just to have a bit of a, a creative side, you know? Yeah, it's always it's always nice to have a creative pursuit. That's part and parcel why I started doing the shows is as a teacher, I I found that I just wanted to have a little bit more of a creative outlet. Yes. Because in the classroom, you are constrained a little bit by your your curriculum and your syllabus and things like that. So you, you, while you can be creative with your lesson plans and things like that, your content, you can't really be creative. So, for example, for the last three years, I've had to teach the same components yes. of English language, but obviously in different ways. So yeah, it's. I think it's it's so important for mental stimulation. I think we all. I don't think we all can be creative geniuses, but I think we all have an ability to create in in some aspect of our lives, and I think it's it's very empowering. The thing is with it, it's it's what we were saying earlier: the service to others. So with this project, because of the benefits of all these things, like the fermented foods, the outdoor living, the mental health stuff, that, that service to others thing. Is, is 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 highly satisfactory to me because if I went into property or stock broke stock you know buying stock selling stocks trading you know that's kind of selfish money so you, you earn the money and you're not really feeling like you're making an impact whereas this um, my reap the sow website I feel like if people engage with it you know they're going to leave with a bit more knowledge and, and and hopefully something that can help them you know so ideally after rugby I want to combine the kind of service to others, which is the reap the sow part, also with stuff that earns money too. You know, the, the reap the sow might not be the biggest money maker in the beginning, 
Um, but you never know where it could go. But my intention isn't really to make money. Yeah. Initially, it's for it's for kind of knowledge for people and and to help others. Yeah, that's great, and I think it's such an important message, especially the sustainable living part. I recently watched an episode or listened to an episode of the another probably controversial figure here. <laughs> such a typical guy. I watched the Joe Rogan episode. He he spoke to a a farmer from Georgia. Um, oh, yes. Guy, the guy had like the coolest accent, but he, he was, he's basically the highest level of grass fed, organic, whatever the, I think it's a level five plus. And he was just talking about like how the, it's all regenerative ag. So regenerative agriculture. And it's so different from how most of the industrial farming is done. And obviously if it was all done like that, we probably definitely wouldn't have as much meat. But the planet would be a far healthier place. He's he's carbon negative. The, the way that they run their farm is their animals use more carbon, and they're able to sink more carbon into the farm than they than they put out into the world. It's it's insane. So it was a, it's one of those Joe Rogan episodes that is so cool because it's so different from yes, like what he norm what what you normally see on there. I'll definitely have a listen. Yeah, give it a listen. It was, it was really really cool. And so yeah, that that sustainable living thing is I think it's so important. I don't think any country has it right, like perfect, because <laughs> like Japan, Japan, any any spare bit of land, there's something's planted there. There, there, vegetables, fruit, and and no one will steal anything. But when it comes to plastic, <laughs> single use plastic oh, is just the thing here. You're describing Korea, mate. That's literally how it is here. Uh, so for <laughs> crazy stuff, like for example, you'll order those of you who can't see this, but I'm showing to my earphone case right for my wireless earphones that will come in a plastic bag uh, like a single use transit plastic yep. bag by the online delivery delivery company that is the size of basically like a big laptop like a 15 inch laptop yeah. for something that's a 20th of the size it, it's it, it blows my mind but then again they do have incredibly efficient recycling and things like that but i mean still it's it still means that they are producing new plastic yes. every single day. Um, even though it's not single use, it's still being produced in huge quantities. And I don't know how it's all being recycled. One thing that is good, though, you, you won't, or well, it's not good, but you you won't find a bin in Japan to put your rubbish in, but there's no litter. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's similar here. There's You don't find public bins. Uh, we have bins outside our apartments that the apartment uses um, that's yeah. their space. And then in public areas, there's no bins. Sometimes it becomes a problem when there's big events. I'm not sure if Japan's the same, but I, was, I saw there was like a, I don't know what it was. I think it was a concert or some kind of festival in Seoul next to the river. And because there were no bins, everyone just kind of left their stuff there. So afterwards, the event organizers had had a cleanup crew come in and clean up, which is great. But I mean, I'm sure some some litter got into the river and things like that because of, of just the lack of bins. So, there's, there's pros and cons. It's, it's very different to South Africa. Yeah. It was, it's quite mind blowing how little po- pollution is. Uh, seeing as there's no bins yeah. in public. Well, Japan's inspired me a bit to to write a few. I'm definitely going to write a few articles on the way they do things here for my website. Um, the, the positive ones. Awesome. <laughs> and then maybe to round out, uh, before we started speaking today, um, we had quite a nice chat. You said that you worked with a mentor and how impactful that was for you. Maybe you can sort of share 
what that brought to your experience, um, both on and off the field, and then wrap up any loose ends. Yeah. There's so much more we could speak about, but as I always say to everyone that comes on, you're more than welcome to come back and we can dive dive in again. So yeah, let's let's maybe talk about that. Yeah, so when I was at Harlequins, I'd always been wanting some sports psychology or some 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 help in that regard. So teams, a lot of teams get sports psychologists in, but they never do individual stuff. It's all like team stuff and kind of kind of on field notes or, or, or reminders and kind of calls you make to kind of get the guys going or body language, all those types of things. But, you know, it's never really the individual, which I, which I think, you know, they need that in sport. So anyway, after being unsuccessful and finding someone while I was at Quinn's, when I was at Newcastle, a uh, former teammate of mine put me in, in touch with his mentor. And it was a, it's a very different type of mentoring. You know, you, you get the psychologists who, who kind of hear you out, hear you out and give you little tips here and there but it's more you talking whereas here it was more like I'd say one or two things and then there would be like a whole lesson so it, the lesson would be on things like ego attachment expectation anger uh, boundaries and then obviously having a process to to progress so yeah I was very in the beginning it was it was great for me and it it, it, it opened my eyes up to to a lot of things just in terms of, but it's all about how you control things. So whether it be the anger, as I said, the, the ego, and and putting kind of processes in place throughout your day to live that life of fulfillment. So yeah, it, it was great. But towards the end, I, I stopped in March this year because I and he, my mentor, actually helped me start reap the sow. You know, to have your service to others. You know, serving myself is the rugby part, and then service to others would be my side project. You know, so. That was the mindset there, and, and it's been great. But we, we did cut ties earlier this year just because I felt like I'd learned enough from him and I wanted to go kind of experience it all by myself rather than having my two calls a week and just like dumping all my stuff on him and just relying on him for, for, for all the kind of knowledge and getting these highs of his knowledge. At some point, at some point the, the baby bird's got to leave the nest. Of course. I think it's very healthy. Yeah, and... and I mean, it, it did get a bit culty and a bit um, controlling. So there were also aspects of that that I didn't really like. But I think what he had taught me had had kind of ended up teaching me to leave him in a way, you know. So okay, which is which is quite, you know, yeah, it, it was quite quite weird. It was hard for me to leave him because of all the things I'd learned. But yeah, the the main things were so he has these practices of of body, mind, and soul. So I'll, I'll give some examples of like what I do, let's say, in my in my week around rugby. So for body is obviously the training stuff. So kind of having a balance there, it'll be from heavy weights to calisthenics to stretching and movement to running, different types of running like stairs and bounds and all that. Nutrition and then sauna and ice, which is a big one in Japan because they have the onsens here, which are like you go into onsen as like the – the, the warm bars and the saunas and the ice you go in naked and it's a whole cultural thing and it's it's great. That's that's so so weird that you brought that up. I was I was going to one of my questions was going to be to ask you if you use any ice therapy because I I'm trying to get find somewhere to do it here but I'm, I'm struggling a bit. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. You can continue. Yeah, so it's, I'm big into sauna and ice. I literally became obsessed because of the recovery and also you get 
it's weird. You get this like natural high from just changing from the sauna to the ice and it's great. Yeah. So those are the body things. And then the mind to keep the mind stimulated you, you, in my, in my week, I try to have some form of study. So I, I got it, my BSc honors in, in, in business. Um, but that was a while ago. Now I just do online courses through a, a website called Coursera. But as I'm saying, for, for, for the mind stuff, it's good to keep your mind stimulated. So keep the study stuff, the research, then create. Obviously, my website, I have the, the creation there. Music, that's part of my mental stuff, you know, listening to music, enjoying some music. Uh, coffee. So obviously, because of my slight hyperactivity, I <laughs> try not to drink too much coffee. But when it's a, a big rugby match or a big training day, I'll, I'll have a good bulletproof type coffee with the long, long-lasting caffeine effect okay. through the fats. And then meditation, which I'm not so big into, which I probably need to get into. <laughs> um, and then the last one is soul. So we've done body, mind, and our soul. With the soul stuff, he would talk about getting into nature a lot. You talk about breathing, so, you know, your Wim Hof type things and okay. all those 2022 breathing things. Okay, okay. <laughs> your purpose, which would be, for me, it would be the service to others, but at the same time, serving yourself along the way. Your love, so the love you have for people, your friends, your kind of mindset to every day, the way you you love everything you do. Then you'd, you'd speak about your two wolves. So we all have our, our light wolf and our dark wolf. Which Which wolf wins? The one that you feed? Exactly, yeah. But and it was quite weird with him. He kind of delved into my dark wolf, and mine was more my my making jokes the whole time. And and so so t- to most people that would be you know trying to be funny and making jokes. To most people that would be actually like a light wolf. But no, it can sometimes take over your serious side, so people don't take you as seriously. You know, so I've learned to to control that and you know keep the light wolf um, firing. Okay. And then what is the last one? Your sexual energy. So like your partner, your girlfriend, that, that type of thing. So it's all these things that, that I never really had before in terms of a process that, that he taught me. And I, I try to live my life, you know, having a bit of a process similar to my, my kicking routine. <laughs> Yo, that is like a very, very awesome and extensive list of things. That's it's like some of those things are at the core of what I've been trying to do over the last three years. But unfortunately, without a mentor, because I think having a mentor would, it, it just shortcuts everything, makes everything so much faster. Yeah, it helps you account for everything, yeah. Yeah, it keeps you accountable. And also, it's somebody who's had the life lessons that can just fast track you if you need a little bit of a, of a speeding up along the way. Of course. Some of the things that particularly stuck out for me is, is coffee, meditation, and creation so for me with coffee i had a very bad relationship with coffee i used to drink like six yeah. cups of coffee a day easily yeah. yeah we spoke about this off air i did a genetic test when i came to korea and i've got the genetic alleles i think they're alleles where i don't respond to coffee very much so i'm lucky in the sense that it wasn't really disrupting my sleep or, or my perception of sleep wasn't disrupted my sleep was definitely being disrupted just from having caffeine in the system, but I couldn't, I yeah. couldn't perceive that. But I've got like a, I've got a whoop band that, that like. Yes, yes, you guys have them at the club. Yeah. So after I stopped the the coffee routine, my recovery and my sleep just improved uh, drastically. Yeah, I literally, when I don't drink coffee, I see, I see huge results to my kind of my my seriousness, my light side, my 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 kind of my my hard working side. Yes. 
But then at the same time, that caffeine hit does help with my training. So I'm in a bit of a catch-22 of of how to manage that, you know. So I just try to keep it to two cups a week. But when I arrived in Japan, (laughs) with the work ethic they have here, I was having to drink coffee every day. (laughs) I went, when was it? Was it last year or the beginning of this year? I went for like a three-month period where I didn't touch caffeine. I had no caffeine. And it was incredible. There's an author, Michael Michael Pollan, who did this experiment and he spoke about it on a podcast. So I just thought, oh, let me give it a try. It's strange. There's something about the caffeinated self that is different to how I am outside of that. And it was very, very weird to see two beings within myself. It was very, very strange. Yes. Like a caffeinated me is not the same as like a, a non-caffeinated me. It's very interesting. But for me, it's it's... If you don't have it that much, but then you, you prioritize one or two days a week where you have a proper like butter, coconut oil, that type of like fatty, fatty, um, fatty coffee, and it proper fires you up and gets you ready for whatever you're doing. That kind of, when you have it in a once-off situation like that, yes. the, the effects are great and the, and the productivity and whatever it may be is great. Whereas if you have that one where you're feeling a bit tired and then you boom, you have a coffee or, you know, if there's no intention behind the coffee, yes. then it's not going to work. But if you have an intention, you're like, today I'm doing this, um, I'm doing my studying, I'm doing my training, I'm doing this, and you have your your strong coffee and you, and you yeah, then it's, it's way better. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm doing a thing now because I did a, a personal training certificate through a guy that I really look up, up to in the fitness space, a guy called Menno Henselmans. Lately, it's come to light that basically seven days without coffee, and you can basically reset your your caffeine receptors. So, I'm going to start a thing now where at the end of every month for the last week, I'm just going to completely eliminate caffeine for a week, and then pick it up again as the new month starts. I just want to see if there's any benefit in doing that. It's it's really good to give yourself a break and, and get things back to normal. Yeah, but you into the the weightlifting um, world, right? Yeah. So I mean, I was. I, I gave my hand at, at bodybuilding and I very quickly realized there's a genetic ceiling that you hit very quickly. If you don't have like top 10% genetics, you realize very quickly that you don't. And that's what I started realizing. I was like, oh my God, like the structure that some of these guys have. Like, For example, there was a guy that, that went on stage. This oak was from absolute like poverty. Most of the, the supplements and resources that he's been using were basically gifted to him because they, they yes. he's you can see he's got an incredible incredible structure so if he gets the right training and nutrition and stuff he's going to be an incredible athlete he was doing so so little right in terms of scientific principles of training nutrition things yet he looked better than like 80 percent of the like it's just like you you can't you can't overcome you can't overcome the genetic hurdles so yeah, that's, that's what i realized very quickly and also I've spoken openly about this. I was using performance enhancing drugs as well to to be in that space. I got to a conundrum in my life where I said to myself, how can I how can I speak to people about health and longevity and wellness when I'm damaging my body in the process of trying to be a a, comp- a competitive bodybuilder. So bodybuilding and health just don't really go together. So I had to, that that's the main reason why I pulled out of that space. I I couldn't give advice or talk to people about health and fitness and wellness and I'm not practicing it myself. Then I'm like a snake oil salesman, you know, like. But that genetic thing is, is very interesting because even with me, with my groins, I could hardly run and then I get them fixed and a few months later, I'm, I'm, my speed is up and I'm back with hardly much. Whereas if you ask me to run a 5K and I've been training for it for a year, 
the guy who hasn't been training who's better at long distance will still beat me. It, it, it's actually, yeah. you know what I mean? It's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's genetics. What I've learned through the personal training thing as well, this coach that I did it with, he's just re-emphasized how important genetics are. And I think, like, obviously, I'm not saying if you don't aren't genetically gifted, don't just give up. Of course, of course, of course. But of course not. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like quite a, I'm very much a realist when it comes to those kinds of things. Like, you know, there are certain people that are just have the gifts. And if they work as hard as you, they're going to be, beat you no matter what you do. But it doesn't mean you must give up. Of course not. No. It means you might have to find other ways to play the game, to be a smarter rugby player, for example, if you're not as quick as someone else. Yeah. Um, whereas in bodybuilding, it's very difficult. You can't really be a smarter bodybuilding. Yeah, because individual. Yeah. kind of all, genet- all all based in physiology, really. I remember you being very nippy around the breakdown back in the day, scrum off. That was also my, my strength. Yeah? Like I think, I'm quite similar to you. I had a very, a very quick 10 and 40, but I hit my top end speed quite quickly. Yeah. So if I'm doing 100 meters and there's a quick winger chasing me he'll catch me but yeah. if if i had 20 meters i could beat most oaks in a 20 were you matric 2007 2007 matric and then i did post matric in 2008 yes, i remember bringing the water bottle on for you back in the day oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes wow yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i remember you were weren't you also quite track and field weren't you also yeah, decent meters, on the sprints and stuff 100 meters was my thing um well, I wish it was a 60 meter because I, I always used to compete against this one Ronda Bosch guy where I'd I'd always win that until 60 and then he'd just nip me at the end. <laughs> yeah. That's the same thing we were talking about. Yeah, that's like, that was like me off the blocks. I always could like hold my own on the 100 and then Oaks is slowly going past me. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I don't have the top end. <laughs> okay, Tim, I think we can we can probably wrap up. I mean, I've got, I've got some more questions, but I think um, I don't want to hold you for too long and I've got, a, I've got dinner waiting here. No, all good. And thank you so much for giving up your time, man. A lot of a lot of your what you talk about is very much in parallel with like how I think and how I nice. go about creating like success and things. So I'd love to to learn more. Cool, thank you. Stay in touch and all the best. Cheers, brother. Have a good one. As we come to the end of this episode of Speaking to Stacy, I want to say a big thanks for listening all the way through. I hope that you found value in Tim's insights and experiences. We've covered a range of topics from the importance of good coaches and mentors to the benefits of tapping into one's creative side and how to cope with loss and grief. Tim is a truly inspiring individual and I'm grateful that he shared his story with us today. If you're looking for more information about his nutrition and sustainable living business, please visit reapthesow.com. That's R-E-A-P-T-H-E-S-O-W.com. But don't stress if you didn't catch that. I've also included a link in the show notes. Thank you for tuning in and please remember to subscribe to Speaking to Stacy. That way you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a rating and a review. It helps others to find us. Remember, the more the show grows, the easier it is for me to bring you more beneficial content. It was great having you with us today and I look forward to sharing this experience with you again in the next episode. Until then, keep well.